Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing our series of sermons on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And as Pastor Owen mentioned a while ago, this morning we'll be looking at the fruit of peace. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, I'll read through verse 9. This is God's word, please give it your full attention. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. From the beginning of time, peace has always been a rare and precious commodity in this broken, fallen world. Let me share with you just a few statistics and facts that I discovered in just a short time of internet research, which of course makes me an expert on the subject. According to an article in the New York Times, in the past 3,400 years of recorded world history, the tribes and nations of this earth have only been at peace for 8% of the time. That's 8% of the time. There are currently, as we speak, 40 wars happening around the globe. Only 11 out of 162 countries aren't currently involved in some kind of war. In the last 500 years, there have been over 8,000 peace treaties signed, and they've lasted an average of about two years. Even more rare than peace out there among the nations is peace in here. Mental peace, emotional peace, spiritual peace. Our own country's Center for Disease Control says that depression affects one in four Americans, one in four. Suicide rates have increased 33% since 1999. Speaking of college students in particular, moderate to severe depression among college students has risen from 23% to 41% in the last 10 years and moderate to severe anxiety has increased from 18% to 34% in the last five years. The number of children and teenagers who have gone to the hospital ER for suicidal thoughts or suicidal attempts have doubled between the years of 2007 and 2015. 
related to that lack of peace among the nations and lack of peace within us is a lack of peace in our relationships, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our communities. That same Center for Disease Control says that more than half of the people who die at their own hand, who die by means of suicide, more than half of them do not have a mental health problem that was known when they committed suicide. And by far, the largest cause of suicide for those people, 42% of them, are caused by broken relationships in their lives. Our search for peace in this fallen world as broken people in a broken world, our search for peace employs an army of professionals. Whether that's diplomats, diplomats or soldiers or policemen or judges or counselors or psychiatrists. It's a problem that's also growing in the church. I've been sitting down around the table with a group of pastors from local churches here in State College over the last few months. And it's interesting, when we talked about what is the greatest challenge facing our churches, what's the greatest challenge facing the people in our congregations, what is the biggest obstacle we're facing in ministry, there was a resounding consensus that it's mental health issues. Not only the fact that there are mental health issues and broken relationships that are plaguing our churches, but there are so few resources to meet the need. Let me ask you, though, before we jump into this, what is peace? If somebody asked you to define what is peace, how would you define it? Probably the first thing that would come to mind would be to define it as an absence of conflict. And certainly that can apply to external conflict, an absence, absence of conflict with our enemies, with authorities, with our bosses, with our neighbors, with our spouses, with our children. We would have peace if we didn't have all these broken relationships with the people around us and especially over us. Certainly that could be true for internal conflict too. An absence of depression, an absence of anxiety, an absence of worry, an absence of fear, an absence of doubt, an absence of internal conflict. But when we go to the word of God, we find out that the word peace is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than the absence of conflict and the absence of stress and the absence of, of anxiety. It's the presence of the good things of God. The word shalom is the Hebrew, the Old Testament word for peace, and it's a beautiful word. It, yes, it does mean an absence of war. It means an absence of conflict with people. It means an absence of stress and anxiety and worry and fear, but it also means the presence of total well-being, healthiness, vitality, prosperity. It's health and restoration to what we are intended to be. It's the state that Adam and Eve were in before sin in the garden. That's what peace is, shalom. Paul here in Philippians 4 calls that peace, that shalom peace. He calls it the peace that surpasses all understanding but we're going to try to understand it this morning as far as we can. It is something supernatural. It's something that God gives to us. It's something that comes to us from above. 
but the Word of God has told us much about it. And we're going to look at it this morning, and especially how it relates to those three areas of life that are most essential. Peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with other people. If you're going to search for peace, and I hope that that's what your life is about, one way or another, to one degree or another, I hope your life is about searching for peace. Because that's what we as sinners and fallen and broken people in this world are intended to do, is to seek for peace. You better begin that search and base that search in peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, you're not going to know the other kinds of peace, not truly, not in any extended way. The book of Romans teaches us that we are born into this world alienated from God. That as we are born into this world, we are bearing the guilt of Adam's sin, and we are born with a fallen, sinful nature. That from the moment we are conceived, we are rebels to God's authority. We are enemies of God, according to the book of Romans and the word of God in general. Romans tells us that our minds in our natural state are hostile to God and incapable of submitting to his will. And if we die in that state, then we will know true separation. Not only separation from God, which is the worst, but separation from all that is good for all eternity. That is our state before we heard the gospel. But the gospel is the good news. That God has provided a way to be reconciled to him. We were enemies of his. We were hostile to him. We were rebels in his sight. We were under his wrath and condemnation. But he has provided a way to be reconciled to us. A way to find peace with God. And it's spelled out in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The way to reconciliation with God is embodied in the eternal Son of God who became man. And being a man and dwelling among us, he lived a perfect life, perfectly at peace with God, perfectly obedient to God, and being the only perfect human being and being the eternal Son of God, he is the only one uniquely suited to be our Savior, to be our atoning sacrifice. He willingly went to the cross, and there on the cross he bore all that wrath and condemnation that your sins and my sins deserved. He died for us. He died in our place. He bore the wrath of hell in our place. And then God raised him from the dead, proving that he had accepted his sacrifice. And what Romans 5.1 is telling us is that if we believe this good news, if we believe in the Son of God, if we believe that what happened at the cross has paid for our sins and that he is raised from the dead and as our risen Lord, he gives us eternal life as a gift. If we believe this, then we are justified. It's as if we had always obeyed and as if we had never disobeyed the will of God. And we possess peace.
peace with God when we believe. That is a precious truth for your mental, emotional, spiritual well-being. It is what you must cling to as broken people in a broken world trying to find peace. Is that everything that needed to be done to make peace between you and God was done 2,000 years ago at the cross of Jesus Christ and was proven when he walked out of that tomb alive again. You see, peace with God is not based upon anything you do. Peace with God is not about a religious experience that you must have. It's not about some commitment you made when you went down the aisle 27 years ago. Your peace is not based in anything you have done, any experience you've had, any act of personal piety or religious devotion or liturgy that you may carry out. Your peace with God was settled when Christ said it is finished on the cross. And that is where you look to for your spiritual health. What he did for you. What is already accomplished. That is where you got your peace with God. And out of that peace with God, you are able to find all other forms of peace. Just contemplate that for a minute. The whole basis of you being right with God is an historical, objective event that happened long ago that cannot be undone. It cannot be changed. Therefore, if you believe in Christ, he is, if he is your risen Lord, then your peace cannot be taken away. It's about what he has done. Not only are you forgiven for all that you have done wrong, but Christ's record of perfect righteousness is imputed to you. It's reckoned to your account, just as your sin was reckoned to his account on the cross as he died for you. That means when God looks at you, he sees someone who has always done his will and never disobeyed. You are in that same legal status in his sight as he looks upon you. But the good news is so much even better than that because not only are you forgiven, not only are you righteous in his sight, but you are adopted by his grace into his family. You are a child of God. And that is all you need to know in order to have the core, the basis, the foundation of your spiritual health and your emotional health and your mental health. Let me illustrate this in my own experience. My mother, if you had known my mother, she passed away in 1990. She's been gone a long time. But she's had a profound impact on my life. She was the only believer in my home when I was growing up. But she loved the Lord. And she loved him dearly. And she was very faithful to him. But she was a very quiet woman who rarely spoke, honestly. And she, because of that, because she is such a quiet woman, she rarely told me she loved me rarely spoke words of encouragement to me, but I have known and will know for the rest of my life that I was loved very deeply and very dearly by that woman. You know how she communicated that to me? It used to really bug me when I was a kid, but I'd be playing with my toys, or I'd be eating a meal, or I'd be watching television, or I'd be playing with my friends, and I would look over at my mom, and she'd be watching me 
all the time. Always had her eyes. Now, I was the youngest of six. I was a spoiled, you know, youngest child, so maybe I got a little extra attention from her. That's possible. But she watched me all the time. And it wasn't just that she was watching me. That kind of creeped me out. But it wasn't just that she was always watching me. But I'll never forget the look on her face. She always had this small smile on her face when she was looking at me. And I just knew. I mean, it bugged me. It embarrassed me when I was a kid. Made me uncomfortable. But as I grew older, I thought of that smile on my mother's face often. I was a deeply loved child. And I have known that. I've always felt that that's a big part of my mental health to this day, is that I knew that no matter what, she loved me deeply. Let me apply this to your peace with God. If you have peace with God, you have been adopted as his child. And when I'm counseling people, sometimes I'll ask the question. People who are wrestling with broken relationships and stress and anxiety and and feelings of guilt and shame, struggling with sin, sometimes I'll ask them the question, do you believe that God is looking at you right now? Do you believe that God sees you? Do you believe that God knows your, not only what you're doing, but he knows your thoughts? Do you believe that? They'll say, yes, I do. Is he smiling at you right now? And if they can't say that he is, then that's a core of what their problem is at the moment, no matter what their situation is. Understanding that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago, God is always smiling at his children. You are always under his favor. You are unconditionally accepted. It's the foundation of your mental and spiritual health. That leads to the second kind of peace I want to talk to you about which is peace within yourself, peace in your own soul, the kind of peace we sang about in that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, just a few moments ago. When we were at war with God, when we were, had a broken relationship with God, when we were under his wrath and condemnation, we were also at war within ourselves. We are living with a conflict between this self-image that we want to project to everybody around us and the reality of who we know we are inside. We had to live with that conflict, and it caused stress and anxiety. We had to live with the the conflict between what our conscience would tell us is right and true and how we would actually live our lives. We had to live with the conflict between what we hoped for and wanted and desired in life and what the reality of our life is. And the result of all that was, yes, anxiety, depression, fear, doubt. Let me read to you the prophet Isaiah talking about our state before Christ came into our lives, the state that we were born into, the state of a broken relationship with God. It says in Isaiah 48, beginning in verse 17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of a sea. But, the chapter ends, verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And then over in chapter 57, he elaborates on that. 
And it says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, I do want to take a moment just to preface anything else I say based on Philippians 4 by saying I do believe, and I know from experience, that some types and some forms of anxiety and depression and mental health issues are rooted in physiological causes, whether it be DNA or chemistry in our bodies or wiring in our bodies, there are often physiological causes to mental health issues. And that's legitimate that they be looked at seriously. There are also, our, our lives are so scarred by bad experiences and bad relationships and our own sin and guilt and the, being the, the, the butt of others' sin and guilt, it causes deep scars that are very difficult to unwind and unravel and understand. And so I believe in professional mental health people working with us. I believe that there is a role for psychiatrists and psychologists, good ones, and by good, I don't mean the way the world defines good, I mean the way scripture defines good, Good psychiatrists, good psychologists, good biblical counselors. I do believe that these professionals play an important role as we try to sort out the factors that have led to all of our, and let me make this straight too, we're all mentally unhealthy. We all have mental problems. We all have emotional problems. I hate the fact that we put labels on some and not on others. We're all on a spectrum between, you know, a demon and Jesus Christ. We're somewhere in that spectrum. We're broken. And we need professional help often. There's no shame in getting professional help. But as we've seen, the core and something that is always a part of our, part of our brokenness are spiritual issues, theological issues, biblical issues. And I'm not an expert in the physiological issues. I'm not an expert in the, the psychiatric issues. I'm not a, an expert really even in counseling. But what I am somewhat of an expert in, to some degree, is in Scripture. In what God's word has told us. I've spent a lifetime studying it. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about. It's what the word of God says about our internal brokenness. Because we are justified by faith and therefore have peace with God, Jesus says he has given us his Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit in those who believe is to produce the fruit of the Spirit that we've been talking about these last few weeks. And the fruit of the Spirit is a work of God in us that we participate in. And so Paul says at the beginning, in, in verse 4, at the beginning of the passage we read a moment ago, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Unless there be any doubt, if you go to the original Greek, that's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, that seems like an unreasonable command for somebody to impose upon us, isn't it? I mean, if you came into my office and started unloading all of your problems with sin and guilt and struggles and brokenness and broken relationships, you unloaded all that on me, and I looked at you after listening for a good 20 minutes or half an hour, and I said, well, you know what? You need to rejoice. I'm sure you would just walk out the door. <laughs> And that wouldn't be unjustified. Because if that's all that your counselor or pastor or mentor says to you is rejoice, 
then it's no more helpful than saying, don't worry, be happy, you know. It's about as useful as that bumper sticker on the back of somebody's car, visualize world peace, you know, it does about as much for you. There has to be a basis for it, there has to be a reason for it, it has to be grounded in something. And so that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Every word in that statement is crucially important. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, going back to the book of Romans, Romans 8 tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for the children of God. If you're a child of God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then all things going on in your life work together for good, for your good, for the good of others around you, for the good of the kingdom of God, and for the glory of God. Now, when Paul wrote this in Philippians 4, verse 4, we know from chapter 1 that Paul is writing this from prison. And that he was facing the very real possibility of execution as he wrote these words. And yet he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Back in chapter 1 and verse 12, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being thrown into prison, being put under the sentence of death, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that's what Paul rejoiced in. Because he understood that his calling in this world was not to comfort and prosperity and ease and happiness. His call was to advance the gospel by whatever means. And in that he rejoiced. Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let, your hearts be, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then he goes on to elaborate in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Did you catch that? In Christ you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble. That's the reality of the calling that we have. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. That's what Paul says when he says rejoice in the Lord. Take heart because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is seated on the throne. He is in control of all things and he is the Lord of all. Rejoice in the Lord always in all circumstances, even the most difficult ones. You remember when the disciples were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and this violent storm was threatening to break up the boat and sink the boat? You remember how the disciples responded to that? Hysterical fear, stress, anxiety, worry. Do you know where Jesus was? Sleeping in the bottom of the boat. What was the difference between the disciples and Jesus? Jesus knew who was Lord. Jesus knew that he had the power to speak and stop the storm in a second. He knew that he was in control of all the circumstances. And that's what the disciples had to learn so that they didn't respond to every trial and difficulty and storm in life by becoming hysterically fearful. Paul says here in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. 
That speaks to the presence of the Lord in two different ways. To say the Lord is at hand means the Lord is here. He's, he's with us. He's among us. He's by my side. And remember, he's smiling on us, with us, no matter what our circumstances. But it also speaks in the way that that's used in Scripture, and probably in this context, maybe even leans towards the meaning that he is coming again. That not only does he have a plan for what's going on today, but he has a plan for the future. And that plan includes him coming back one day to make all things perfect, to bring in the new heavens and the new earth, to make us in body and soul perfect and healthy and whole for all eternity and to be with us for eternity. I told you a few weeks ago what my new favorite phrase is in church. God is good. All the time. All the time. If you truly believe that, then you can rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord doesn't ever promise us deliverance from trouble. As a matter of fact, as we saw a moment ago in John 16, he promises we will have trouble, we will have tribulation, we will suffer. That's what he promises. But he, he doesn't promise us deliverance from that. What he does promise us is peace. We've trained ourselves here at Oakwood Presbyterian Church to look for evidences of grace, even in the most difficult times of life, sometimes especially in the most difficult times of life. I would add to that, we need to look for evidence of providence in every aspect of life, evidence of providence. God is working out his plan, and it's for your good, for the good of his kingdom, for the good of the others around you, and for his glory. Verse 6 gives us the key to this inner peace. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I know it sounds simplistic, but it's absolutely true that prayer is the antidote to worry and anxiety. Prayer is the cure for worry and anxiety. Prayer is inherently, when it's done genuinely, it is inherently an act of faith. It's an act of trust. We understand that our prayers are not a way to change God's will. Our prayers are not a way to order life according to our agenda and our kingdom and our desires and our plans. What prayer is is an acknowledgement that he is Lord and that we need him to live out our lives as broken sinners in a broken world. Prayer is an act of dependence inherently. And I'll tell you, that every time, when I talk to people about the, the, the presence of anxiety and worry and fear and doubt, almost always there's a corresponding lack of prayer in their life. And certainly when I look at my own life, there is a clear connection between prayerlessness and anxiety. Do you notice that Paul gives an attitude check to add to your prayers? He says, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Do you know why that's so important? Is to make sure that your attitude in prayer is correct. Because if you just make your request known to God without thanksgiving, it very easily becomes a list of demands. God, I have a right to this. God, if you're good, you're going to give me this. But if you start your prayers with, first of all, hallowed be your name, and secondly, thank you, Lord. 
Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for how you have been there for me in every situation. Thank you for the blessings in my life. Thank you for salvation in Christ. All of this is totally undeserved. Okay, now let me talk about what I feel are my requests for you. And the other point I would make about prayer is just something to think about, is that it's amazing to me that it's easier to find a place of peace through prayer in times of great suffering and great difficulty than it is in the normal, everyday annoyances of everyday life. That's because, you know, the difference between those normal, everyday annoyances and the big crises and problems in life is that in the big troubles of life, we know we've got to get on our knees. We know that we're dependent upon the Lord. And if you think that you're only dependent upon the Lord when you're in big trouble, and you're not dependent upon him in your normal everyday annoyances of life, then you don't know God as you should. And that brings us to the other key to finding inner peace that Paul mentions here. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. And again, that sounds simplistic, but man, that's hard work. It's a lifetime of hard work, thinking about the things that he's just listed. It's the lost art of discipleship that we don't practice much in a modern era. The lost art of discipleship is to be disciplined in your mind. To be disciplined, to take control of your thoughts, to submit them to the Lordship of Christ. To fill your minds with the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. I mean, we're talking about stress. We're talking about fear. We're talking about doubt, anxiety, depression. How does the world that doesn't know Jesus Christ deal with these internal turmoils? The swirling of the mud and guck that Isaiah talked about. How does the world deal with it? The world deals with it by avoiding it, by distracting themselves from it. They distract themselves from it with their work. They distract themselves from it with romantic relationships. They distract themselves from it with hobbies and entertainment or drugs and alcohol. They distract themselves from it. That's how they deal with it. It's that glass of wine at 4 o'clock that the stressed out mother drinks. Or that stop off at the bar that, that, the, that the husband has on his way home from work. That's how the world deals with it, by distraction, avoidance. Maybe there's some here who have been influenced by Eastern religion. You know how Eastern religion tells you to find peace. Where do you find nirvana? By emptying your mind. Emptying your mind. Do you see how God, what Paul is saying here? Do the exact opposite. Fill your mind. I mean, if I tell you right now, exert all of your mental, emotional powers that you have at your disposal and do not ever in a moment right now think about an elephant. What did you just do? It doesn't work to empty your mind. It doesn't work to distract yourself. You need to fill your mind with these good, true, and beautiful things that Paul is talking about. It means being regularly in worship with God's people. Not neglecting the gathering together 
with God's people to be in your small group, to be in your mentoring relationship, to be in worship, to be in Sunday school, to be involved in the fellowship and service of your church. That's how you fill your mind with what is true, good, and beautiful. It means to be in the scriptures, reading the word of God every day, reading devotionally. But more than that, to be studying the word of God, to not be content. I know so many Christians that have become content with where they are in their reading of the word of God and their study of scripture and their study of theology. And they've said, hey, I've, I've, you know, I've, that's all, I've got that done, I've got that down, I can move on. It's to be a daily, lifelong objective of mental discipline to fill your mind with what God has revealed to be good and true and beautiful. It means digging deep into salvation. Every time I preach on the gospel, and that's hopefully every Sunday, I have Satan whisper in my ear saying, you know what, people have heard this. This is old news to them. They want something new, something innovative, something challenging. And I have to go back to the word of God and say, no, we need to dig deeper into the gospel. I've been studying the gospel in depth most days of my life for all my adult life, and I feel like I'm only scratching the surface of it, especially when it comes to application. Dig deep into the gospel, the plan of salvation from the calling that happened before the foundation of the world to the glorification that awaits us when Christ returns. Study deep into the gospel. That's filling your mind with what is good and true and beautiful. It also means getting out into creation. I'm going to get on this soapbox again for a moment. Put down your phone, turn off the computer, turn off the television, get rid of the video games. Go outside. Take a walk through the woods. Walk outside at night and look at the stars. Do some wildlife observing. Listen to some great music that's honoring and glorifying to God. Enjoy some art and literature that is beautiful and good and true and glorify God in it. Fill your mind with what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. It's hard work, but it's where you get your peace and spiritual wholeness and wellness. Listen carefully. You've heard this verse many times, but listen carefully in light of what we were just saying. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, speaking of the Lord, or to the Lord, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. It's exactly what Paul's saying. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And of course, that leaves us just a couple moments to talk about the outcome of this. Starts with peace with God, which produces by the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace within us, which then begins to transform the relationships around us. It's inevitable. It must happen. Back in Galatians 5, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. And you remember the fruit of the Spirit that are listed there are contrasted with what Paul called the works of the flesh. In other words, what our old, rebellious, sinful, pride-centered, anti-God nature that we are born with, the works of that flesh, it lists some characteristics of the flesh and its attitude and its works. And what I want you to notice as I read through that list for you is how these are all, not, not, this is just the largest, it's not all of them, but it's the largest section. The most of the elements in the works of the flesh are relationship breakers. Listen to the list. 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That's what the flesh produces. That pride-centered nature is broken relationships. But listen to the fruit of the Spirit again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are relationship-building traits. These are redemptive traits. These are peacemaking traits. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers who have the fruit of the Spirit that can transform relationships. We are called to make peace. Romans 12, verse 18. So far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Romans 14, verse 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. It's a consistent call to those who know Christ and have been forgiven and restored and reconciled and adopted into God's family is that you are to go out and make peace. And one thing you'll notice about the language in all those verses is it's hard work. Strive, work hard at making peace because we're broken people and we're trying to make peace with other broken people. We make peace, we don't keep the peace. Keeping, if, if, if the American government were to send a peacekeeping force into a war-torn country, those peacekeepers don't make peace. They keep people from killing each other. That's all they do. They protect assets. That's what they do. They do not make peace. They keep peace. And we can tend to do that too. We can avoid dealing with real relationships. We can avoid, when we're in conflict with somebody, we can break that relationship off and walk away. Or we can just avoid that person. Or we can pretend that nothing went wrong. And we can avoid conflict. But that's not making peace, that's keeping peace. Making peace means employing the fruit of the Spirit to rebuild and reconcile relationships. And it's hard. It takes vulnerability. It takes risk. It takes being willing to suffer pain and, and rejection and discouragement. Inner healing and healing in relationships requires the truth, it requires repentance, and it requires forgiveness. And there's nothing easy about any of that. The first step, according to Scripture, is to confess your own sin before you go deal with somebody else's sin in your life. Take care of the log in your own eye. Second step, be an initiative taker. Whether you are the person who was wronged or whether you're the person who committed the wrong against somebody else. I love the way Jesus handles that in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, in other words, they feel that you've sinned against them, he says, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then in, verse, in Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, in other words, they've sinned against you, not you sinned against them, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, whether you've been wronged or whether you're the wronger, you're the person who's done the wrong, you are to... In, According to what Christ has commanded us, you are to take the initiative and go and make peace. Could you imagine what the church would be like if we all took that seriously? That we all have the responsibility when we get in conflict with one another and there's broken relationships, we all have the responsibility to take the initiative to make peace? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be quick. But it's certainly better than what we do now, which is either to leave the church and go somewhere else or, or avoid that person or pretend like nothing's wrong. And then once you have dealt with the issues, the last step is to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. That's the hardest step. 
to forgive the same way that the Lord has forgiven you. Let me close by just pointing out the promise. You can't miss the promise that's in this passage, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remember, the peace that passes all understanding is shalom. The absence of all conflict, but the presence of the full presence and blessings of God. Spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, health, wholeness. That's what we are called to. That's where we are on the way to. But notice that now, today, we can have this shalom, this peace that passes understanding. And the word guard there, it guards your heart. The word guard there in the Greek is a military term. It's to stand sentry. To stand there as a sentry protecting, keeping out the enemy. This peace that we're talking about, as you appropriate it in your heart, it guards you against the lies of the devil, the anxieties and worries of the world, the doubts, the fears, it'll guard your heart. And then there's the even greater promise in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. God is smiling at you. He is with you. And the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And in that, you find your peace. Let's pray. Father, we live in a dark and broken place. And there's still much of that darkness and brokenness that still exists in our own mind, in our own hearts, in our own lives. Lord, you have reconciled us to the Father. Lord Jesus, you have made the way of peace with him and with others and within ourselves. Father, I pray that as we study your peace together, we would dig deeper into the gospel, deeper into your word, deeper into theology, that we might fill our minds and our hearts with what is good and true and beautiful, that we might be transformed and that we may become agents of transformation to the relationships around us. Lord, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.